wanted to ask her what she was doing. And so she had told me she's leading a group, six month course for white people, teaching them about racism and how to combat it in their own ways. And I immediately thought she was lying. I thought, <laughs> well, there's no way, like, are you just yelling at these white people for being white and racist? Like, what are you, what are you doing? Why, who's why signing they, up for that? Like, yeah. who's signing up for that? Literally who's paying who's money for that? that? I'm like, there's no way this can't be true. And um, that turned into me just sitting in um, on a couple of sessions. And then I got to guest speak. Um, just to talk about my experience as a young black man in America. And um, from there, it led to me being a co-facilitator and um, I wouldn't have it any other way. It's a beautiful program we built here. Hey, welcome back to the Joy, Color, Impact and Dogs podcast. It's me, Nick. I just wanted to do a quick introduction to this episode because it's a really important one that I have been really looking forward to sharing with you. And the reason why is because I feel like I lived most of my life, like 30 plus years, not running into any conversations like these and wanting them, but not really doing enough to seek them out. And one of the ways as I've explored my relationship with race and white privilege and unlearning all the things that, you know, our programming in the societies we grow up in teaches us about, you know, ourselves and the world around us and what it means to be fair, equal, kind, is that we need more opportunities to listen. Basically, we do a lot of talking, we need to do some listening. And I know a lot of us got a lot more involved with the conversation around racism after the murder of George Floyd. And hopefully those of you who did get interested are still doing something to try and understand your role in racism. But if you're not and you'd like to be, this is a really good way to kind of dip your toe into the conversation around what it means to be white, what it means to live in a white world if you're not white. And that is why I invited Dr. Lynn Marine Hurdle and her son, Justin Naeem Hurdle Price, to come onto this podcast and have an ongoing series of conversations that we're calling Dealing with Whiteness, where I'm asking dumb questions and they are very kindly <laughs> giving me their honest opinions and sharing their life experiences and helping to create a safe space to answer some of these questions, to have some of these conversations that you might find a little bit uncomfortable or a bit surprising, but hopefully will open your eyes to some of these issues that you might, you know, be hearing about in the media or experiencing in your own life and getting a little bit of perspective. And the reason I invited Dr. Lynn Marine Hurdle is because I've been involved in a course of hers for a few years now called On the Matter of Race. And you'll hear us talking about it. If you're curious about it, just, you know, DM me. We'll usually have a link in the show notes for you to go check it out. But if you're looking for a container as a white person to have some of these conversations yourself, especially with Dr. Hurdle, who is amazing at holding space for these conversations and with Justin as well, who is really honest, as you'll see, about what it's like to be a young black man in America, which, you know, is not often a great life experience when everything around you is, you know, trying to convince you that you're a villain 
basically, that you're not safe, that you're not worthy. And we'll hear Justin, you know, share his experiences in, you know, all white institutions and, you know, being someone who has these conflict resolution skills and is involved in this work is kind of a double-edged sword for him as a young man. So I'm really excited to introduce the very first episode of Dealing with Whiteness to introduce the incredible Dr. Lynn Maureen Hurdle and her son, Justin Naeem Hurdle-Price, founders of On the Matter of Race and I really encourage you to listen, to sit with this. Definitely hit me up if you have questions. And if you're interested, like I said, in having this conversation with Dr. Hurdle, then definitely check out On the Matter of Race. Um, And otherwise, we'll just keep bringing you these episodes to have these candid conversations. And I hope you find them really interesting and that it causes you to ask some of your own questions and dig a little bit deeper in your own life. Hey guys, welcome. Thank you. So oh, glad to be here. It's an honor. <laughs> so we are here because we've decided to have some conversations on this podcast around whiteness and race and what it's like to be black in a white person's world. Let's dive into that massive, big, huge vortex of a topic by just starting to like maybe help people understand how we met and how this journey started. Um, And for me, that all started with finding out about On the Matter of Race, which is a wonderful course that you guys lead. Can you tell us a little bit about the origins of that program and why it even exists? Yeah, well, it exists because two white women actually saw that they needed to have something that would teach them about racism in the United States specifically and uh, and how to do something about it because we were all in the same business group together. We were in a mastermind and they, for the first time in their lives, were having friends with people of color. And they did not know how to participate or even believe some of the conversations that people of color were having about the racism that they were experiencing regularly in their lives. And they both said, we know it's not us. We know that this is their experience, but we just don't have a clue. And so we, they had worked with me before around conflict resolutions, because that's my jam, that's what I do, over 40 years doing that. And they said, love to work with you again, but would you consider this? And truth be told, I said, no. Uh, <laughs> this work a long time. And most of the time what happens is people, companies mandate, right? Diversity. Uh, right. To- And so the people that come the maddest and the most resistant to trainings around racism are white people. I'm just straight. Right. And of course, yeah, I did not want a a program, a group that I was going to have to run regularly with resistant white folk in it. So I just said no. But we kept talking and I realized that. First of all, they needed it badly. (laughs) (laughs) Let's be honest. (laughs) That's number one. But the other thing is that I realized that if I put some parameters around it, right, I would be able to do it. And the first parameters, everybody has to be interviewed because I loved that they saw the need for themselves and that they were really wanting to learn. And so for me, 
anyone that comes in on the matter of race has got to be in that space. Your story doesn't have to be the same, but you've got to be in that space. It can't be a, a space of resistance. That's some other workshop. That's somebody else's work. So mm. that was one thing. Everybody has to be interviewed. And then the other is I want them coming and thinking about, well, what will I use this, this knowledge, uh, both the internal knowledge, because you do find out about yourself and on the matter of race as a white person, but also the knowledge of the history and all of the things that we teach. What are you gonna use it for? Why are you here? Because you're not gonna get a grade, you're not gonna get a degree. What do you want to use it for? So everybody has to talk about what's a particular thing. And it could be that they just want to have a conversation with their grandfather who they had known all their lives as racist, but they don't know how to have the conversation. And people are doing all kinds of things. So we started three and a half years ago with uh, well, one group that had eight people in it. And then I thought it was going to die out by the time we went to level two because we went down to three people. And then, uh, unfortunately, George Floyd was murdered. And then we went from one group to five in 48 hours. I had I had enough interviews set up for five groups in 48 hours of putting the word out there that this was available for folks. And uh, and Naeem's origin story, though, is, is interesting as well. Yeah, yeah. that was going to be my next question is, so I think you joined about halfway through my experience in On the Matter of Race. What led to that? Yeah, so uh, a lot of curiosity. Uh, I'll just say right there, and that's pretty much the foundation of why I joined <clears throat> On the Matter of Race. Uh, I was simply listening to my mom, Dr. Lynn Maureen Hurdle, do her thing. Um, which I had to be quiet for every time. <laughs> um, but I'd come out for a snack, uh, overheard some really, really cool stuff, some a really, really deep conversation. And um, I simply remember standing there, you know, in the cracks of the kitchen for a few minutes um, and then waiting until she was done to ask her what she was doing. And so she had told me she's leading a group, six-month course for white people, teaching them about, racism and how to combat it in their own ways. And I immediately thought she was lying. I thought, <laughs> well, there's no way, like, are you just yelling at these white people for being white and racist? Like, what are you, what are you doing? Why, who's why signing up for that? Like, yeah. who's signing up for that? Literally who's paying who's money for that? that? I'm like, there's no way this can't be true. And um, that turned into me just sitting in um, on a couple of sessions. And then I got to guest speak. Um, just to talk about my experience as a young black man in America. And um, from there, it led to me being a co-facilitator and um, I wouldn't have it any other way. It's a beautiful program we built here. And you've been doing conflict work since you were like 10, right? Like this is not a new, <laughs> this is not a yeah. new world. Yeah, I'm 21 and uh, I've been working in the field of conflict resolution since I was 10. Yeah, so. there's no no such thing as I can't find a summer job for my kids. <laughs> <laughs> in the family business. Yeah. yeah. So Well, and let's be honest, as you said, you're a young black man in America. Conflict resolution is probably a, a life skill for the world that you experience. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's changed my life. It's gotten me out of certain situations. It's helped me maneuver 
certain environments that I can't really get out of. So for example, like a private white institution, I went to private school my whole life. You know, those are tough environments. Those are, those are energy and air sucking environments when you're a person of color. And so to conform to certain uh, expectations and certain uh, just ways of being to really stick around in these places while also still trying to love yourself and be yourself and appreciate yourself knowing that you know everyone else looks different and it's living different um it's definitely just such a uh you know roller coaster it's definitely um an emotional roller coaster but um conflict resolution made it possible for me to even be able to be here with you today so um i'm very thankful for the work. Well, we're very grateful for that for sure <laughs> you know i want to say something off of that though which i think is really straight to the topic, uh, two things. One is that there's always this decision that has to be made uh, when you are Black and have children as to education, right? Because in this country, it's always been uh, unequal education, no matter what folks say, no matter what laws have passed, it, it just is. And so to try to figure out where do I want my children and uh, do we want them in public school, which, you know, I don't have a problem with public school, but one of the things that I was concerned about was safety and the schools in our area didn't do a good job of that. And it's not like I didn't try. I kept trying to say, you know, I'd love to come in and work and it didn't work. Uh, or do you put them in a religious school? And we, we weren't really thinking, uh, Warren, my husband, I weren't thinking, that was the route that we wanted to go because that's problematic in terms of racism, right? I can and, imagine. Right? Yeah, there's a lot religion, there. Racism, religion, there's a long yep. history there. And then, so then do you put them in private institutions that are predominantly, I mean, predominantly white? And, and I tell you that that is a really difficult choice for parents. And a lot of times we hear the stories on the back end of how much our children suffered as a result of being in that. And I do believe that uh, while the conflict resolution skills were valuable, it was also a way to say we're acceptable and we're not scary Black people because that is absolutely something. I mean, even with the fact that both of our sons had conflict resolution skills, I had to come up to the school more, more than I should have for a prep, to be honest, uh, and for very clear examples that my sons were looked at very differently than the white sons who were, I mean, they were raising hell in that place. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> and getting away with it because it's about uh, white and money. Oh my gosh, the combination is deadly. I'm, I'm sorry to say, but the combination is deadly. And so I do want to acknowledge and honor, thank you Naeem for saying that, that the skills got you there, but I also feel like the skills, just using those skills alone uh, cause problems as well. 
Um, and so, uh, and I want folks to know that that's the, that's the choice you make. You can teach your child, listen, somebody hits you, you swing back. You don't let, right? You can teach that. In a private school, as a Black child, you know where that's going to get you, right? Into public school, you know, if that's, yeah. not, you know, it just is, like, yeah. faster than faster than any other child that doesn't look like your own. And I think that that needs to be said, that the white folk need to understand that that's what we are up against. I can really imagine that because, you know, my children right now are three and two and our oldest is starting school in September. And we went through this conversation around just the public school and the private school conversation being a white kid in a white area, like there was so much for us to consider just about the difference between those two things. So I can't imagine having the complexity of, you know, race layered on top of that. It must just feel like the most impossible decision. <laughs> and I'm yeah. sure like, Justin, if you're weighing in on that decision, like there's like the devil, you know, and the devil, you don't know. And like, how, you know, how, how did you guys come to that decision? I'm really curious. Well, to be honest, I was thinking public school. I was thinking public school. I, was, I grew up in the same area and uh, I went through public school. Unfortunately, though, I went through public school when it was predominantly white. We, my parents moved us up here when I was seven and my sister was eight and it was white. And so, and where are you guys based? Because I don't think we've mentioned oh, that. we're in the Bronx. We're in the Bronx, home of hip hop. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's important. Like, that is very very important. important. Some neighborhood pride, yeah. That's right. Uh, and so I suffered a great deal being the black child or then what happened is by me, Junior, we call it junior high school at that point, middle school, uh, black children were being bussed in. And so mm -hmm. I was not from the project. So I suffered because I wasn't white and I suffered because I didn't come from the projects. Nothing wrong with the projects, y'all. I'm not putting that down, but it, it's a different world when you live in an all white neighborhood and when you live in the projects, right? And so I was the safe black person, but I, I don't know what I was safe for because like I said, it was difficult because I wasn't white and they knew that I was not one of those let's throw hands and get to it kind of like I was the goody girl because that's what my parents did, right? So, uh, so I was thinking public school and our oldest, Jabari, he uh, was doing so well in just the... Um, preschool in the preschool that he was in and the director said um what are you going to do and we're like oh, no I don't got school it's like are you going to put him in public school she's a white woman and so we hadn't thought about it. she's like I bring all these people in so that the kids can be exposed to people who can get them into you know the private schools if they uh, do well on the test you know it's like not academic tests but whatever the tests are puzzles all that stuff right <laughs> i'm not putting it down but i mean come on y'all i do remember the test aptitude <laughs> tests sorry y'all but that's some white stuff right up there testing three-year-olds you know to get them into this privilege oh my yeah. gosh but okay so she said i know he'll he'll get in you know so we 
because I went to public school. So I didn't know the private school route. So we did all of these interviews, dragging him everywhere and blah, 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 blah. And so he's six years older than Justin. And it was just, Justin was up there every day, you know, the pick up, drop off, pick up, you know, all that stuff. And he got to know little brothers and all that stuff. So he really wanted to be where his brother was. So we didn't even really think about, was this the right place for him? It was, he, his brother's here, they love him already. He did well on the interview. It's an easy thing to just, right? And then my husband and I made sure we won every uh, multicultural committee there could be from the time Jabari started kindergarten through the time that, um, that actually Naeem left at the end of middle school. So we thought that might help. And then at the same did time- it? It helped me to know at least uh, enough <laughs> what you were up against. I tried to try to hang things on my sons. Uh, I could say, no, we're not playing that game, right? But it did not help uh, Justin in particular in terms of being able to help him through the the um, emotional struggles that were happening for him as a result of really being um, bullied because mm -hmm. this racial aspect was here. Mm -hmm. And because he was also the kind of kid that could have handled both sides of the spectrum, he could have um, handled knocking your ass out <laughs> as well as talking it out. Uh, but again, because we felt so boxed in of this, um, this is who we are, this is how we want to look, this is that we really had him to use the conflict resolution skills when um, he could have just taken the consequences of mm -hmm. getting people off his back and we would have had to do something else school-wise if that was the end result. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what's really interesting here is especially for anyone listening where this is their first sort of step into this conversation, all of the nuance of something as simple as where to go to school and what that looks like when you're a black kid instead of a white kid, right? Like yeah. all the things that you had to manage, Justin, all the things you had to consider, Lynn, like, yeah, I think that is just a really nice <laughs> snapshot of the complexity of this conversation that I'm really excited for us to have here because, you know, as a white person and, you know, pre four years ago, like everything that you just said would have been really eye-opening to me and shocking probably because I just never would have realized how different life experience is when you don't have white privilege. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, I think just the one thing I'll add to that is it's simple as, you know, a white kid who's, you know, disruptive in class is considered a class clown. Mm. As a black kid who's disruptive in class is considered to have literal behavioral issues and mm -hmm. labeled that way. 
And then not only that, yeah. there's this process that doesn't take that long to move that child out of the class that they probably should be in and need to be in to then, you know, as a lot of people would say, uh, like special special education classes, yep. right? And, and we know and where so, that goes. We know <clears throat> yeah. how that goes, right? There are plenty of kids who, at the end of the day, do not need to be there. Kids of color who do not need to be there, who actually need to be in AP or anything like that, or can work their way up there. But because we have to monitor our actions 24-7, 365, knowing one slip up, can just completely derail the uh, the progress that we're working towards. It's a very hard battle, even as a child to wake up, especially as a child, to wake up and fight every day. Because yeah, there are plenty of situations where I look back and I'm like, all right, I did the right thing walking away. I feel I feel empowered by that. And then plenty of situations where no, this kid deserved, sorry, to get punched in the face. Uh, for messing with me, thinking that was okay, for saying certain things, right? I had kids, you know, in sixth, seventh grade, referring to other people of color as the N-word with no consequence, right? And and nothing like that. We had hosted a, uh, I had, along with other students in eighth grade, uh, right after, I believe it was Michael Brown, had had been had been murdered. That's a murder. These are murders, by the way. So we're gonna. So I'm sorry if I trigger folks at home, but we we refer to these. Yeah, call it what it is. We call it what it is. These are murders of black people, innocent black people. And so, um, the murder of Michael Brown, uh, really lit a fire in me within the PWI that I was at to say something, do something. So we had, along with me, and you know a handful, because that's usually what it is in these schools, a handful of um, other kids of color came together to organize uh, a march, um, a, a die-in, which lasted four minutes and uh, 30 seconds of complete silence, because that's as long as Michael Brown was out there, unattended, dead body, uh, four hours and 30 minutes. And so um, one of the things that happened was we put up Black Lives Matter signs on all the lockers and a child, a, a white kid had no problem taking time out of their day to cross out every single word, well, every single poster that had the word black on it, so every one of them, and put all lives matter. And so, you know, just it just even and that. And how old was this? So I was so I was in eighth grade when this right. happened. Um, but I'd already heard the N-word and that so that's was like 13. I'm like 13, 12, 11, not only watching someone who looks like me get murdered and then I'm in a school where, I mean, to be quite frank, they didn't care. They didn't care. You know, it, like it made them look good that we did that. But um, oh, yeah, nothing, nothing changed after. And and I have I mean, to this day, I'm friends with people from that school and they're telling me, yeah, bro, nothing's changed. We graduated and nothing changed. Right. These kids were seniors dealing with, a, you know, a bunch of pranks and senior pranks on on people and, and uh, teachers of color that were clearly just distasteful. So it's a tough fight to fight, you know, and um, I would have happily taking the consequence of whatever, just to stand my ground in who I am in knowing that, yeah, yeah, we can talk 
the majority of things out. But if you're, you know, putting your physical hands on me or you're putting my safety at risk, even as a child, right? Like, you know, we're just messing around being kids, but we know boundaries even as, as children. So, you know, to go against my own boundaries every single day to be told, and I let her know all the time, to be told that you were telling me to go against my boundaries every single day only cause scars. And so oh, I can imagine, if, you know, if, if I want anyone to take anything away so far from what we've said, it's that her experience in these PWIs was not that different from mine. Can you and, explain what a PWI is for people who don't know? Yeah, uh, a private white institution. So uh, a lot, a lot of private schools um, on all levels, elementary, middle, high school, college that are predominantly white. Though that that is a PWI, and so um, those were the schools that I attended all of my life, and and similar to my mother. And so you're seeing two generations here with very similar stories of that pressure we received from our own parents to act a certain way, look a certain way, and then just how generationally that's been passed down, right? Like these are two generations right here and you're hearing pretty similar stories of our experiences being in these uh, environments. So uh, I just, you know, that's that should go to say that uh, we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. Yeah, and I wanna say something too, because I know, I know when you don't know and you don't do the work that this will come up in some white people's mind is that, well, we have to think about education as well. And we want good schools. So we have to think about what schools we put our kids in and then you move to a certain neighborhood. Yeah, but we're not talking the same thing in terms of what you have to think about beyond that. Mm -hmm. What you have to think about once they get there and what you have to think about every day in terms of your child beyond just a child's self-esteem, but a child of color, right? Uh, the self-esteem question is huge because we live in a world that promotes this narrative of negativity when it comes to, in particular, Black and Brown children, but, but Asian, Indigenous folks as well. Yeah, it's so layered, isn't it? Like as parents, we battle, we're always going to battle with like how much we jump in as well, right? With like trying to help. And I saw a really interesting meme the other day that was, I'm not, I, there was no information about the picture. So I'm not sure where it was. I'm not sure the year or the, the state or anything, but it was a little black girl and it looked like probably the fifties. And it said, the caption under it said, if this little girl can survive it, Right. your kids can survive learning about it That's right. That's <laughs> it's like basic 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 conversation around what yeah, we that, as that, white people the are ruby, the pictures of ruby bridges okay mm -hmm. yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah thank yeah. you for yeah she had to integrate the school and it was atrocious what she had to go through just to even walk into the building yeah, folks can look that. Y'all can Google that um, because that is that was a huge thing. Yeah. Yeah, I believe I was blessed enough to actually listen to her speak at one of the one of the schools I went to. Mm -hmm. So 
Wow, she, that's amazing. So yeah, she talked about it. And, you know, again, we were in a PWI. So it's like, risky. just how much is, just how much is this resonating right. with mm-hmm. people? And it's like, it, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't. Because it's a whole different experience. It's not that we're not sharing the same walls, the pencils, the, the jungle gym, the, the notebooks and textbooks. It's not that, you know, we are not one. It's that in us being one, there is so much difference and, and, and in, in execution, in maneuvering of this world. And, and that's exactly what All the Matter of Race is about, just closing some of those gaps for people. Yeah, and I want to say also the thing about Ruby Bridges, and there's um, there are other stories as well, but the thing about Ruby Bridges is when you look at the pictures of the white parents out there who were screaming horrible things and holding up signs or just were angry that this little girl was going to be a part of the school with their children, what what the United States teaches you barely is these are racists, right? These, no, those were everyday normal people, parents like you. Those were were your neighbors. That's right. These weren't (laughs) people. Yes, some of them were wearing sheets at night. Yes. But in terms of who these folks were, the majority were just parents just like you who that's what they thought about this little black girl entering the school because we live in a society where systemic racism teaches and passes on and infiltrates these messages of who people are who are not white groups of people right and and it is so harmful that it affects, damages lives to this day. We are continuing to have to deal with it and suffer from it. Obviously, if we're having to see all of these uh, murders by police officers or shootings by police officers that, and, and just even the cut kind of violence that takes place because we uh, we don't love ourselves because we're we're taught that we are not good enough, and that in fact the narrative around the black face is that it's a criminal, right? Um, mm-hmm. so. Yeah, and certainly the black community is not immune from the programming we all get about. That's right. Black people. That's right. That's right. Yeah. We're born into the programming. Yeah. So. That's yeah. Right. I think that's a really. It's a really nice sort of segue into this conversation around kind of where, well, I can only speak to my experience, but to where I was when I found on the matter of race and to some of the early, the big early ahas and awarenesses I had by stepping into this conversation, the slow creeping, like water absorbing kind of speed of like the awareness of privilege, I think is, is a really interesting place where I feel like a lot of people just don't, they don't ever get to have the conversation. They don't ever get to the point where they are having the conversation. And when you do, you know, just like we can dive at some point, we'll do a whole episode on white fragility and go deep into that. But I think, you know, that initial defensiveness, because that's what we're trained is, you know, this idea that it's not our fault. 
right? Like nothing's our fault. It's not our fault. We don't know. It's not our fault that some people are racist. It's not our fault that your experience was terrible, Justin, like not my fault. And then immediately that, how can I fix it? Right. How can I fix it? How can I fix it? Okay. Now that I have this sliver of awareness, just this tiny little glimmer of how horrible this is, what can I, white person number 37, do to dismantle this system that has been in place for 400 years, right? Like, because surely now that I know, now that I buy in, now that I'm sad about it because I'm aware, like, surely I can fix it. And I, I think that's where this journey begins. I feel like that was a huge tidal wave that we saw with the murder of George Floyd was a whole bunch of white people going, oh shit, this isn't just a racist problem. This isn't just the, you know, Confederate flag waving weirdos down in the South, right? Like this is an everybody problem. And I think the big beginning of the awareness for me was that if you are not actively doing something to contribute to a solution, to contribute to change, then you are part of the problem. And I think that that starting point of awareness is it just that is really hard for white people because of exactly what you said. We've been told our whole lives that racist people are the problem. And when, in fact, I think one of my big early learnings was this idea of nice white people being the biggest problem in the perpetuation of racism. And you had us read a great book called Nice White Ladies. Mm -hmm. And when you were talking about Ruby Bridges, I was thinking about that, you know, the white mom holding up the sign and thinking about that book and, you know, learning about this idea of white women, white mothers in particular, hoarding resources, Mm -hmm. which is not something in a million years I would have ever associated with race right? It's just, I want the best for my family. I want the best schools, all the resources, but there's not an understanding of the role white women have played in perpetuating racism, but also in the role that being white plays in the allocation of resources across the board, right? There's just no thought to the other, you know, the people who are not us, because we've not been put in groups our whole life like you have. Right. You can, you are allowed to be individuals. I mean, there's so many complexities. It's just like, y'all, y'all just really need to learn because y'all are full of all of the daggone complexities there are, because just the statement you, you made alone, if I, if I could rewind it, I, and have, oh, I even have the transcript of it. I could highlight so many things that really could be taught about racism off of what you just said, uh, but the whole being nice, it's not enough. It doesn't do anything to dismantle racism. And in fact, let's talk about Dr. King, who everybody wants to hold up, right? Amazing. I mean, I wouldn't have done it. Whatever his calling was, he believed in God. I would have said, God, sorry, we have to go to the next one. Who's up in line next? And that next in line would have been me. Because I'm so. I don't want to do this, but he did. But one of the things that he talked about more towards the end is he said it is the white liberal, the white moderate that is really getting in the way here because they will say that they are with us, but there are boundaries, there are limitations, and that and there's not a real belief as to the full extent 
of the problem and how far we need to go to dismantle this system. And it and I truly do believe that, you know, in the South, they have a saying that they're better off down there because they'll call you the N-word to your face, right? And they but they say in the North, they will smile in your face and then the whole time be stabbing you in the back, whether the intention is there or not. Mm. And and that is something that I think is really important. Like one of the most favorite signs that I saw, you know, so here's here's one thing, right? When we had Trump and there was the pink cat march or whatever it was, the I call it the <laughs> white woman march, right? Because so many white, <laughs> white women came out for that, right? Yep. And there yep. was a white. There was a white man. Well, there was two signs. One was for a black woman, young black woman who was just uh, had a lollipop in her mouth and was holding her sign very casually saying, you know, that 52 percent of white women voted for Trump. Right. And so, you know, y'all need to handle that issue because you sort out here, yourselves out. <laughs> right, right. Y'all need to be talking to each other because that sounds like a you problem and yet you're out here right <laughs> and then there was a white man who had the sign and he said so i'm gonna see you nice white ladies at the next black lives matter march right and so i was like exactly the point we don't see that kind of uh owning that this is really our problem alongside of the problems that it has created for people of color, right? And so the the outpouring in particular of white women, nice white women, right? The outpouring of that when we're talking about something like Black Lives Matter or anti-Asian violence, right? We don't see that. But for women's issues, we see that. We get it. I get it as a woman, I get it, except that this is a huge issue that to me, everything else sits on top of it and is impacted by it. And I think the one thing I'll add is that, you know, I'm happy as, as sad as it is that George Floyd opened up some eyes for people, but um, I don't know how Rodney King didn't do it. You know what I mean? Like that's that's where that's where my mind goes. I'm 21. Mm -hmm. That's fair. I'm thinking, about, <laughs> I'm thinking about all the white parents who the way in which my mom was, you know, music on in the in the house and and getting us ready and stuff um, for school with such bright light energy. Um, you know, I'm thinking about well, damn, if this is happening, if this is how adults are acting clearly this seed was planted from very young and you know that's a lot of yeah just being nice um actually is i think more damaging than um anything else because just how safe am i if you're going to agree with every little thing that i say when it's time to agree when it seems like it's it makes sense right like the reality is there's plenty of other George Floyds. There's plenty of other Rodney Kings, plenty of other Michael Browns, plenty of other Trayvon Martins, plenty of other Tamir Rices. He was 12, by the way. Mm -hmm. He was 12. The way that white kids 
have airsoft guns and stuff. We can't even have the one that has the orange cap on it that clearly shows you it's fake, right? So you have to think about these seeds that are planted and, and how, and that's what's made me step into the work because I'm like, wow, there's no way you just develop such hatred to do something like that in a day. Mm -mm. That takes <laughs> that takes a lifetime of practice. That's to generational. Execute, yeah. To execute a murder. That takes a lifetime of hate to practice and 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 uphold to to do something like that. So that's why I'm here, because I'm looking at the white parents and I'm thinking, well, if I was 11 being called the N-word for the first time, but I'm able to go to that same house where you're teaching these kids the wrong stuff because it makes you look good that I'm there. Again, just how safe am I with you? Mm. I think you've brought up a really important point, which has become a really interesting awareness for me throughout this process is this idea of, you know, we are a program, you know, one of the big programs is Black people are not safe, particularly Black men, right, are just dangerous or yeah. unsafe, right? That's one of the the great, <laughs> the great effective tools of white supremacy. Yeah. And the big sort of almost funny, it's obviously not funny, but it's, it's, it's interesting and a little funny, this idea of like, why are we not having more conversations about how unsafe white people are <laughs> for black people? Like, clearly, if there's a real danger here, it is not you, Justin. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Because, right? I, because I'm thinking, if you're afraid of me, why would you want to date me? I'm thinking, if you're afraid of me, you know, wh why are you saying, honestly, all these nice things? Just like, what, it's again, like, that's a, that is an internal thing for anyone mm -hmm. to work through. So yeah. if I'm a person of color not trusting white people, I have to work through that as well to be as open and receptive as possible to the world we the live in. The good stuff. <laughs> right, which is a it, which is a huge world. Like if I like- if, While watching your back, because we still- While also knowing if it's real, yeah. Correct. Or if it's real to a point, and then right. all of a sudden we cross a point where all of a sudden I'm now reverting to the un unconscious bias that's like fueling my unconscious behavior. Right. It's like one minute you're so beautiful and you're so this. And then, you know, if you're a black man expressing any type of emotion, uh, anger, anything like that, it's right back to the criminal, right back to I'm scared of you. So it's like, you know, what am I? Am I this? What's I real? This? What's real, right? Like, you know, can I even be myself with you? Can I even go through a bad day with you, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and so that's, these are things that I think about, you know, we talk about, you know, white women and just how we're raising white people, how white people are raising themselves. It's like, it's it's a really interesting experience that I've had. It's like, there is this fear, there is this whatever, at walking on eggshells, but I want to get closer and I'm interested in you. And it's like, bro, I'm just another human being. Who deserves yeah, like when do you get to just be a human being right when do i get to have a bad day and not uh have to worry about my life on the line mm -hmm. when do i get to have a bad day and not have to worry about my education on the line when do i uh get yeah. to be a human being when do you get to be looked at by a store owner a police officer as oh okay yeah 
just another kid coming through right, the door. Just another kid <laughs> going through whatever, made a mistake, but you got your whole life ahead of you. Let's help you out. Let's, you know, that, when does that happen? Because mm -hmm. it is often not given the benefit of the doubt. Oh, and I've seen that time and time again, when you teach your kids, like, you can't do what your white friends do. Mm -hmm. You really do have to teach them that because when they start to look, when they do something wrong and they start to look for somebody to blame it on, it is most likely going to be you. <laughs> you know, it just is just because that narrative is out there and there is that belief, right? Yeah. Um, and also because there's a difference in the way that we behave. It's it, it's so interesting because it shows up in on the matter of race all the time in level one. Uh, in in particular in white men, I'm gonna say it, but in, in <laughs> white women as well. This whole thing. Well, why don't we just go and and knock this down? And why don't we go and make sure everybody knows these things? And <laughs> It's like you don't even know. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. That hadn't occurred to us. But even if you did know the system well, you operate in the world very differently than we do. We can't go when we storm the steps. We don't, we don't even get to the steps. Just that, just the thought that we might get to the steps has all of the armor out there, the SWAT team, the guns and everything. The tanks. Right, the tanks, everything. But you could plan it, put it in the newspaper, <laughs> put it on social media. Get a permit. With arms, <laughs> climbing, scaling the walls. And you do not it was really interesting when that happened, though, because one of the things that surprised me, because I think that was about, I think that was like halfway through my first level in On the Matter of Race, uh, the storming of the Capitol. I was actually really shocked and pleased to see how almost everything I saw in response to that was, we know what this would have looked like if these people were not white. That's right. What That's the right. hell? What the hell is going on here? And I had never seen anything like that before of this sort of everyone in my space, my very white space saying like, wow. Yeah. We would have seen amazing. warfare and it wouldn't have lasted very long. Yeah. No, absolutely so, not. Uh, That's right. You know. Okay. So I feel like we could sit here and talk about this shit all day. <laughs> all day. <laughs> which all we week. will. Which we will. <laughs> Um, but I wanted to kind of tie us up so we can get people excited for our epi next episode where, um, we are going to dive into one of these topics and then we'll try and take it topic by topic for our future episodes. And I'm really excited to that. You know, this is not a one-time conversation that we're going to keep coming back to these topics mm -hmm. and going deeper and deeper and deeper. And I hope you know, anyone who's found this conversation interesting today will keep an eye out for these episodes on, you know, these conversations about race and particularly around what it is like to be Black in a very, very white world, which I think really is the crux of what white supremacy is about. And hopefully we can make that really uh, break it down for people if this is their first, you know, introduction to these topics and hopefully get people really excited about learning more. Where can they, obviously we'll put the links in the show notes, but where can people find out more about On the Matter of Race? Well, if you go to lynnmaureenhurdle.com, 
right? Uh, on the matter of race, there's a link there. And then as uh, Nick said, she'll put the link here. Uh, but you, if you go there, you can find out all about me. You can find out about us on the On the Matter of Race link. And the next journey starts uh, May 15th. And we are well, we are opening open already for interviews because we only take up to 12 in a group. And it's rare that we've actually done 12 because mm -hmm. it's, it's an intimate opportunity to have conversation like you've never had before of your life. I guarantee you <laughs> the conversations are very different than anything you've had. Um, I can back that up <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, definitely. So definitely go check out on the matter of race. We'll keep um, mentioning that and talking about it because I think it's, it is rare to have an opportunity to sit down, you know, with you and to just, yeah, have some of these conversations in this intimate space where it's safe. And, you know, I think you're amazing at holding space for us to be dumb and ignorant, which bless you, because I can't imagine that that's easy. <laughs> well, to close us practice. And we have each other afterwards to bounce stuff Can off. you believe? Yeah. <laughs> and therapy. We all have got our therapy, right? <laughs> Um, yeah. so just to close this out today, like, this is probably a little bit of an unfair question, but I think it will be an interesting sort of thought provoking one is, you know, as you think about your work and on the matter of race, as you think about how you navigate through the world and what your hopes are from each of you, I'd love to just hear like, what is the one sort of big, loud core message you want white people to get, like to hear it, to get it. What what is it if you could shout it out and everyone would hear it and understand it? What do you where would you start? I was gonna I would say that you are not the experts on racism. <laughs> People of color are. And so you really need to be doing the work of learning about it and how to help us, not lead us, but help us to dismantle. My, the thing I want to add to that, that was a big learning for me in your space of, of coming to learn from you was how important listening is like that role of taking that backseat as a white person who's used to talking and just shut the fuck up. Listen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'll leave you with two. Um, yeah. I was, I'm, I'm so happy you said that because I'm not going to say it that way, but yeah, stop talking so much and just listen. Um, even if you don't have an answer, you, you know, you don't need to have an answer out of every single conversation, at least right in that moment. A lot of times, you know, you know, conversations are, are seed planters and, and you got to, you know, nourish these thoughts. You have to, you know, stay curious. You have to, you know, let these things actually live in your brain and, 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 and see how it goes from there. So um, that takes a lot of listening. That takes a lot of stepping back and a lot of letting other people talk. That's that's one. And then the other, I would say, is um, the work is uncomfortable, but you'll survive. <laughs> yeah. Like like the work is uncomfortable, but you will survive. The, the reality is we it's a 50 50 chance for us, whether we do the work or not, of living of actually living. And that 50-50 is more 60-40, 70-30. I'm just trying to be nice. 
because this is my first time on the show. And I, <laughs> I want y'all to enjoy this space. Tune back in more times. But um, dude, it's uncomfortable, but you're gonna survive. Like, so I don't know why it's so uh, scary, but that's not for us to help you figure out. That's on you to figure out. Why is it so scary? Why do I? only want to say the right things at the right time. Why is this not in my veins? You know, do the work. You're not going to die. It's, you're not the ones on the, on the receiving end of the, of, of death on this problem. So I would, I would, I would cut the shit on the, on the, I'm scared to do this. I'm scared to offend people. Like cut the shit, do the work. It's uncomfortable. Make a few mistakes. Know you're going to be okay while doing it and keep coming back. That's right. Well said. Very well said. <laughs> Love it. No Yeah. I know. Yeah. You know. <laughs> well, I obviously can't add anything to that. So that's how we're gonna go out today um, on our first ever episode of dealing with whiteness. So thank awesome. you so much for being here, guys. I can't wait for us to chat again. Such thank a pleasure. You. Thank you. An honor.